Welcome to the Strength Coach Experience Podcast. Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Lego. Your host. And here we and here we go, go, go. Uh, welcome everyone to the Strength Coach Experience, episode number forty-six. Today, I'd like to welcome Matt Wenning. Uh, Matt is a uh, world championship powerlifter, as well as a strength coach, and also uh, had some experience training the Army. Matt, uh, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it, and just excited to you know get this conversation going and kind of find out your background and, and all the things you've been through in the field. Yeah, no problem. Awesome. So why don't we just jump right in and just go through, you know, your background growing up and kind of how you segued into coaching and biomechanics. Yeah, sure. Um, so I grew up in a little town called Muncie, Indiana. It's a little bit northeast of Indianapolis. Um, lifting kind of became something I got into about 11 years old. I had a I had an uncle that came to move back home with us. He was a younger brother of my mom's and he was always kind of the fit fit guy but he never could hold a job and like he was just a train wreck in life you know but uh he was always working out and shit and one day we he had a weight room set up kind of in our like makeshift family room and it was just sand weights and he was benching like 135 for I don't know how many reps he was doing and I wanted to come in and work out with my my favorite uncle and uh he's like all right well let me strip some weight off the bar and I'm like no I can do what you're doing and he's like you know He's like, no, you're going to get fucking hurt. Let me take some weight <laughs> off the bar. I said, I said, well, let me try it. And he's, he was kind of like, well, fine, motherfucker, try it. So <laughs> he handed out to me and I do it for like 10 reps and I've never touched weights before. So he's freaking out because I can bench like 135 for 10 and I've never even touched a weight. And uh, so that kind of got me interested in it because my uncle thought I was a badass. And uh, so that led me into uh, having my mom get me a, um, a, a kid membership at the YMCA. And so about the next year or two, I'm working out in there. Um, and a couple of the old timers that were in the gym had messaged me or uh, messaged me and talked to me. And they were like, uh, Hey, you, you might want to come and work out with us. And they thought I was in high school. And I was like, I was like, yeah, that's cool. Let me talk with my mom. Cause I'm only like in sixth grade, you know, and they're like, what you're in sixth grade. Cause I was like 165, 170 pounds, in sixth grade. Wow. So, um, Long story short, uh, that they took me under their wing. They, they gave me all the knowledge that they could. Uh, I say the number one thing that they did was not let me max all the time. I, every time I went to my first probably five or six competitions, I never failed. I never picked a weight where I failed. And I don't know if they did that on purpose, but looking back at it now, it was like the smartest thing they could have ever done because it built up my confidence. But then it also taught me when I go to meets to never bomb out and never miss weights. Um, so that's what kind of started making me a champion at that point. So uh, about 18, 19 years old, I go to my first world championships as a teenager. I win um, in Omaha, Nebraska. And um, after that point, I started kind of searching for, I knew, I, I knew, I knew that I kind of outgrew what the local people knew. So my coaches knew of Eddie Cohen up in Chicago and knew of Louis Simmons over in Columbus. So, I spent a handful of times in, with Eddie and a handful of times with with uh, Louie and everybody at Westside Barbell, and I tended to 
go more towards the energy at that time, which was at Louie's place. Cause Chuck and Kenny Patterson and George Halbert and all those guys were just fucking insane. Um, and you would go to Eddie's place and it was just as insane to the weights, but he was more methodical about it. So being a kid, I kind of got drew over to the intensity and uh, that was at about 19. And I was driving over there and lifting for quite a few years for up until about 99. And then by the time I hit uh, my last year in college, which would have been 2003, I broke all the USAPL American records. I had won collegiate nationals multiple times. And uh, I finally decided to do a pro meet in 2004. And at, at 24 years old, going to grad school, I squatted 903. And the, the equipment back then was not really a big deal, you know. So um, that kind of put me on the map. And then uh, 2005, I finished my master's degree and move over and train with Louie's crew full time. Um, and by that time I'm squatting a thousand pounds and I'm benching, um, in the high sixes and pulling in the mid sevens. So the next two years we polish everything. And now I'm at the top five in the world in totals. Um, and then a couple years into that, I kind of situated myself into kind of my own training group and then broke the world record total in 2008. Um, 2009, um, I had one of the highest totals in history under, under the super heavyweight class. And then 2011, I broke the all-time world record in the squat at right under 1200 pounds. It was 1197.6. Um, and then switched to raw, which was in my opinion of raw is if you're going to go raw, you need to go completely raw. So I went with belt and knee sleeves only and broke two more world records in the squat and then had the second highest total of all time, uh, in 2016. So, yeah, I mean, I've been around a long time. First first competition was in 1993. So my competitive years were from 1993 to 2018. Wow, quite a story. And I, you know, definitely want to get into the more of the training with Louie and those things. When you were first coming up, you know, you said you started, you know, the bench pressing and stuff at, at 12 and 13. What kind of training did you do in the beginning? Was it just go to the gym and and kind of lift heavy in the basic lifts or were you already doing kind of accessory stuff and what sort of stuff kind of did they teach you, you know, at a young age when you're at the gym? Well, I remember the one big thing that I learned and it was by accident was I needed to have a strong back to have a strong bench press. Uh, Timmy and those guys wouldn't let me bench press with them until I could do a pull-up. So I practiced and practiced doing pull-ups and pull-ups because I was a big kid. So a pull-up was a big feat. Um, and then after about three or four months, I was able to do a pull-up. Um, and so what that taught me deep down was I needed to have a strong back. Now, whether they were doing that just to be a dickhead or whatever, it may be. But in my mind, what it did was it taught me that the backside of my body needed to be stronger than the front, which was a very valuable lesson at 12, 13 years old, and probably why I never had any shoulder problems. Um, but back then, it was because they didn't know any better. It was more linear periodization style, but it was a lot about breaking rep PRs. So we would try to break rep PRs with, say, 225 or 315 you would have a number of reps that you would get at these certain weights and we would try to beat those say at least once every three to five weeks but we would only really max again pretty smart we would only really max about every 15 20 weeks um, to try a new one rmpr so they based a lot of things off of reps which built my work capacity up really well but it also built my ligaments my tendons and my muscle tissue up by the time i was 16 17 i was already pretty dense um, I had a lot of muscle tissue. 
Um, but I started to have a lot of technical flaws, especially in the bench press, uh, because they would just move however you felt natural instead of having all these little these little uh, tricks like what I initially learned from Louie and George Calvert, which was how to place your hands, how to squeeze the bar. Because by the time I was almost 20, I was benching 500 raw, but my shoulders were killing me all the time because I would bench with a little bit more of a flared out elbow um, and use a lot of peck and shoulder because I didn't know any better. Uh, I think the only thing that saved my ass is that my upper back was insanely strong. Uh, so it protected my shoulders. Um, and then by the time I was 20, 21, I completely revamped all my training and it no longer looked linear periodization at all. It looked a lot more Louis Simmons conjugate style where we would do speed days and max days. And a lot of your strength development was based on accessory work and building up weaknesses. Yeah, that's good. I mean, it seems like you're already doing a little bit of the, the conjugate stuff early on, you know, not kind of following the same thing, but, you know, the way you were going for rep goals instead of just pushing weight and that linear thing wasn't there, you're still doing the acceleration because still to this day, I don't know why, but in the strength and conditioning community, people still like to go linear a lot and it, it just never made any sense. You know, the conjugate well, way is... I mean, it's, pretty, it's pretty simple. They go linear because they're lazy. That's true. People that are lazy and can't think about scientifically how to train do linear periodization. And in reality, when I see people that train that way, to me, it just shows a basic lack of education and a basic lack of uh, implementation of proper, you know, I mean, the Russians figured out linear periodization was not the way to go in the sixties. And we're still fighting this battle in America today. But when I see linear periodization, the first thing I think of is just they're lazy. Um, because it doesn't take smarts to write down 10, 8, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. It takes smarts to understand where your weaknesses are, base all your training around it, and then understanding the force equation in both sides of the ball on you not only to get stronger, you have to get quicker, but you have to get quicker to get stronger. Um, you know, but it, it, at the end of the day, you see a lot of these people that speak on this linear periodization, whether it's in strength conditioning or it's in powerlifting, they speak on it as the people that speak on it and are pro linear periodization, I tend to notice that they don't stay around very long. Um, you know, and college strength conditioning coaches and things of that nature, they don't really care because they only have the athletes for three or four years. So what do they care if they're grenaded by the time they're 26? It's not their problem anymore. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's a huge thing. And I think you hit it right in the head. Completely agree you know, you have to track when you do those things, you have to track everything, you have to track the movements, but also you have to have a keen eye, you have to be able to see the deficiencies in kids when they squat, not just are the heels on the ground, are they weight shifting left and right, right, do we have a fold over, do we have low back issues, but those are things, and I'm sure he's experienced that people always ask, how do I do that, and it's not really a how, it's getting in the gym and, and seeing it over and over and over again with different specimens, different people of different heights and different body types. And that's kind of the only way that you can see the, the mm -hmm. different things with those systems. And when I was in college with baseball, I used the conjugate system in the preseason. And, you know, every time you try to explain the programs, it's, I can't, it's somebody walks in, you identify a weakness from how they move. And then you do things based on that to fix certain movement patterns. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the real, that's the real trick is it's all based on weaknesses. I try to tell, I mean, we have four interns at the gym right now. And the first thing I tell them is if you don't know the answer to a question involving strength conditioning, always revert back to weaknesses. And, and, and it seems to work really well because what you find is people that are linear periodization based or what I would consider very 
poor type uh, periodization based, they don't talk anything about weaknesses. It's all about the same motor pattern over and over and over and over again. And that's great if you want specificity, but if your thought process is specificity, which most of those people are, you're going to tend to have a very short career because you're going to get a lot of mileage in certain areas. Yeah, absolutely. And I've been talking on other episodes about the, you know, the across the board injuries in sports, you know, professional sports, baseball, basketball, all that stuff. And the thing that keeps coming up is that same thing. The, it seems that a lot of the staff, sports medicine, strength conditioning, they keep getting on guys' strength side. You take a guy like Giannis and you have him deadlift or not that he deadlifts, but it seems that this whole catapult system and power output, and that's what everybody drives through minor league baseball all the way through, and they don't need that. They need tissue. They need fascial strength to keep them at the high level they're at and not do all this other stuff. I think the systems are great, the catapult and the tracking, but all my you know colleagues and things I've talked to, it's all about power production at high-level universities and at high-level sports teams. When in reality, you're just trying to keep them – the way they are, they don't need to get any stronger. They need those special strengths. They need to weed out those weaknesses. Sure. I mean, that's the key. You get the weaknesses fixed. And I would say that at that level, a lot of those weaknesses are theoretically, most of those guys are just plain fucking weak. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was actually, it was a huge shock system to me. So first time I went to Australia to speak, they took me one of their pro rugby teams and they asked if I would be willing to take them through a workout that I would deem you know, fit for that particular sport. So I had them doing squats. They did, they did sets of five um, and they had to do it with a controlled tempo on the eccentric and explode on the way up as much as they could. And we worked up to weights of around 80, 82%. And what I found was, is this was 2012. So some of this might be a little bit mixed up, but what I, what, what, what isn't mixed up is that the next day, the whole team was bitching at me how sore they were. And the weight that they were using was in between 185 and 250. These are pro rugby players. They're getting sore with 200 fucking pounds. And and I've seen this with pro basketball. I've seen it with pro football. The problem with a lot of these pro sports and even the colleges is you're not there to get better. You're there. You are there to be used for your abilities. So a lot of times when you see these athletes, they're not getting better at their strength programs. They're actually – just trying to sustain what they, what they came in with. And that's, that's sad, you know, but the point is, is that, you know, a strength program should always be based around individual weak points. And a lot of times you can find those through the injury data. So if you have guys that have torn ACLs, you know, their hamstrings probably aren't very strong. If you have guys that have constant lower back issues, you know, their TVA and their lower backs aren't very strong. If you have guys with constant shoulder issues, guarantee you their scapular muscles are weak. So it's, it's not that it's rocket science, but the fact of the matter is, is there only a handful of us, me and maybe a few others included, that actually look at all that and develop the programs based on those particular variables versus just throwing in some bullshit program that we think works. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's those overlining weaknesses. Once you figure out those markers for the weaknesses, then you can come up with a system to fix some of them. But again, it goes back to what we talked about, that laziness or that fear of the unknown. You know, as you know, you train certain teams. When you start lifting heavy or maxing out or doing certain things like tempo, if the next day they're all dying, then all of a sudden we have a problem because they're not supposed to be sore. Or you get a lot of thing in college. They don't want to go from 400 pounds to 200 pounds of tempo because they don't like doing that because it's not pushing their thing. Because somewhere along the line, somebody said the more weight you lift, 
the higher all your power output goes as opposed to the more overall strength we get and the better we get at using our movement or the stronger we get in certain patterns will be stronger overall for our sport. And I think that's where we kind of have an issue because it's still all about weights. And, you know, I was talking to the girl from Pitt the other day, how strong is too strong, especially when you play athletics, you know, you have to make sure you get rid of weaknesses first instead of just blowing out power cleans, deadlifts and squats. Sure. And, but the hard part is, is I've never really, I've only maybe ever ran into about five athletes. I said we're, we're strong enough. Um, and the reason is because, in the West, we don't train the athletes, no matter what the sport is, to be stronger. They're too specific. So even good football players aren't that strong based on the fact that they're not really working on strength conditioning like they should be. Um, you know, at the pro level, you got, I mean, let's face it, most strength coaches at the pro level are paid babysitters that are at best physical therapists. They're just trying to not hurt the guys, get them a little bit in better shape for the ones that stay in the off season. And in the preseason, it's don't get them hurt. I mean, that's really what it is. So I, I don't know. It's, it's conflicting because I don't, I'm not saying that those guys don't do a bad job, but at, at the end of the day too, I think that a lot of the problem is they just don't have the power to do what they need to do. And strength coaches now are hired by their degrees and those types of things and accreditations versus some real experience. I don't know how many strength coaches I go to when I go to say the NSCA you know, national, and I go speak, and I look out in the audience, and there's not one other person in that audience that can bench 500 pounds. So you're telling me these are the strength coaches in the country? Like, you know, so it's it's one of those things where I'm not saying that you got to be a beast to be good, but it definitely helps you weed through a lot of bullshit, you know, versus if you're weak, you fall for anything because you don't know what strong people really do. And you've never had that kind of weight on your back. So sometimes an average person puts their own limitations on their own athletes, right? So if I'm a strength coach and I've never seen, say, 600 pounds on a squat bar, then I'm automatically going to think that's dangerous for my athletes because I can't do it. I think, you know, and I'm not throwing names out there, but I think Mike Boyle is, is very similar. Mike Boyle tried to be a power lifter for 35 years ago, fucked his back up trying to squat 500. And now everything bilateral and heavy is dangerous. Maybe it's just dangerous because you were doing it wrong. You know what I mean? And that's the thing is I, I, what's strong enough for an athlete is I don't know. I don't think that that is a number, but I think that we have to be careful as coaches, trainers, or whoever, we have to be careful that we're not putting our own limitations on the people that we work with. Yeah, I absolutely. I, I think that's a great point. And even if you can't do those lifts or push that much weight, at least put yourself in positions to see that going on where it's a normal thing. I mean, I know from my own experience, I was at school in Brooklyn and, you know, we were a mid-major, so I never saw big heavy weights. And then I went to TCU as an intern and the first day guys are putting up 650 pounds and incline bench press and 550. And I was like, oh my God. But what that did was it kind of normalized pushing the heavy weight because right, you know, came from not that guys weren't strong, but you wouldn't see anything over four plates, four and a 25, but being able to go down there and see guys move weights or see kids come up to you that are monsters. And they're like, Oh, how come you're not squatting? Oh, when I was a freshman, I benched 650. So the coach said, I don't, 
you know, I don't have to max out. I just have to concentrate on certain things because they got to that number. But I think that's extremely important for everybody listening out there. Even though you're, you may not be able to squat or bench press 500 pounds, make sure that you expose yourself to experience of everything, because this is what happens. I think, you know, you have people that think it's crazy to deadlift 650 pounds. You may put limitations on it. And I think that's something that happens. Or if you don't see it as normal in, you know, wherever you go or wherever you are, because I think sometimes coaches get caught kind of in a strength coach bubble, if you will, because if you're at a school that's small and either the athletes may not be as skilled or as strong, or you don't see things like flipping thousand pound tires or lifting and moving heavy, heavy weights, that's not going to be a part of your program. And I know definitely for me, it wasn't something crazy. Then, you know, I started getting into a lot of the West side stuff in my younger years and I was able to go to Texas and that kind of opened everything up for me because yeah. I got to see that with, you know, guys moving heavy, heavy weights. Sure. I mean, and the thing of it is, is what I'm, well, I guess what I'm getting at at the core is push your own limitations. I mean, if your job is to make other people stronger and your job is to get other people's limitations to be higher, then maybe you should do that yourself. You know, that's the worst thing I get as, and they're always the worst interns that I've ever had. And I'm talking over the last 10 years, not just indirectly. Uh, it's the ones that read everything and done nothing because then they think they know what the hell they're talking about and they don't know shit. And then they get under something that's even moderately heavy and they look like a sack of potatoes. Well, if you can't do it, you sure as fuck can't coach it, you know? And I'm not saying that, like I said, it doesn't have to be a 650 pound squat, but shit, man, at least be 2.5 times body weight strong. I mean, that's athletic, you know? So I think that my point is, is it push your own limitations. If you want to be a strength coach or you want to be a trainer, you need to know what it's like to be uncomfortable. You need to know how to hold technique when stuff feels like shit you know you need to push your own limitations so that you can have that particular belt buckle when you walk in I mean I think that's why I feel so comfortable talking at national conferences and helping people with lifting weights is because the majority of people I'm going to run into I'm way stronger than they are and I've done it with impeccable technique you know I, I think that's the hardest part with any um, profession that we have today is everybody wants a job but nobody wants a passion yeah, couldn't agree. I mean, absolutely. I, I think that you have to experience what you're doing and what you're talking about. You know, at least if you, like you said, with the weight, at least be under heavy, heavy. You have to understand what it's like, even if it's your own weight. If, if you weigh 150 pounds, get under 400, pick, at least you have to understand. It's very important. I think it's another thing. If you're going to give workouts, subscribe workouts, write them down. You as a coach, 100% have to go do them. If you're going to subscribe a you know, reverse hyper or some piece of new equipment, you have to go use it. 100%. I can't stand it. Well, how do you use this? Oh, I don't know. I saw it on this. Or sometimes you have coaches, you know, try to explain a workout and they don't know how to do it. And I think that's huge. Make sure that you know what, what the, you know, the scenario is like, make sure how it feels. And 100%, if you're going to give anything to any of your athletes or programs, make sure that you've done it. You have to know it. You have to be versed in it because as, you know, Matt said, you have to be able to explain what it's like to be in those situations. The only way to do that really is to, you know, talk about it. I couldn't imagine being under, you know, that much weight in a squat rack. But like I said, you have to be put in those situations to be able to explain and talk your way through it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so when you, you know, growing up, we talked about getting through the weightlifting stuff. Uh, were you like drawn to the science stuff right away? Is that something that came out of your passion for powerlifting or was that something that, was kind of there early on, right? You know, kind of when you started. Well, I was always wanting to try to always find the best way. I never wanted to feel like I was wasting my time. 
Um, so when I would train, I was always reading. And at first, you know, obviously back then there wasn't internet. So I, I got a hold of good stuff and bad stuff, but you know, we were luckily lucky at that time that powerlifting USA was still around. Louis Simmons was writing in powerlifting USA. Um, Fred Hatfield had some different information. Um, all of my, all of my old coaches were humongous fans of Ed Cohen and Bill Kazmaier. So we looked at a lot of the stuff that they had put out, even though I would say that would be not the greatest way to train unless you're super built to do it. But the point is, is that I was always intrigued to how things worked. I was always intrigued with how muscles would grow or get stronger. And um, so I think that that started pretty young, but I didn't get access to a lot of the high level knowledge until I was probably around 20. So I'd already been lifting for lifting competitively for seven years. Um, but now it's so much easier because of the internet. I think if you know where to look in the right places, you can find a lot of smart ways to train. Um, and there's a lot of bullshit out there too. So it's kind of 50, 50, but, um, there's just a lot more information out now, but I, I was always intrigued. I think you'd have to be almost intrigued to push through a master's degree in biomechanics under Dr. Kramer, because, um, for a lot of people that don't know, Dr. Kramer is not only probably the most researched, uh, driven PhD professor ever in the United States on strength conditioning. He also doesn't take any bullshit in class. I mean, if you're under him as a master's student or a PhD student, that's your life. And he weeds people out real quick. So um, the point is, is like, I was always interested in it. And, but for, at first it was a selfish goal. I didn't get into powerlifting initially to be a strength coach and help others. I just wanted to be the baddest dude I could be. And then I started to realize I was so passionate about being better myself that I felt like I could help others achieve similar, um, similar things. So, yeah, I would say that it started off always being a search for how to do things better. Yeah, no, I think that's that's kind of a bug that bites everybody. You know, the first couple of times you go into a weight room, you know, in the profession, it's it's wanting to get better and understanding that what you're doing outside the competition floor, whether it's sports or, you know, with lifting weights, that that's the most important, you know, the most important part and not so much the competition. So I think that's across the board, something that's huge. And anybody out there listening, the, the practice is the stuff you do outside of competition. That's when you're going to find your weaknesses. That's when you're going to figure out what you're good at. And that's where you're really going to build yourself. You know, even in sports, it's not always going to be on the competition floor. So I think that's a huge thing to understand that the practice part is always going to be the biggest part. And if you want to get into this, you know, we spoke about passion before it's not something where, Oh, I like to, you know, uh, you know, lift weights, or I just want to get better at my sport. A lot of times it's, it's already going to hit you when you start. I mean, I know for me, when I was younger, I could go in the, I was like a giant playground because, you know, you constantly get to figure out how your body moves and how to get better. So I think that's a huge thing. I just want to go into some of the, the, you know, the West side stuff you train in there. I mean, they have the documentary and all those things. What are some of the things you did in just with the craziness and the bands? I just want to just explain from your experience over speed eccentrics and some of the stuff you guys did there. Well, I mean, you know, we were just experimenting. I mean, we had we had a handful of some of the strongest guys in the world at the time, and we were all open to new ideas and getting stronger. And the main goal was to break world records. So we were always looking for the next the next thing that would catapult us to the next level. And what we all realized, because we were already all so fucking strong, is that the fact is we needed new stimuluses constantly because we could all burn out really fast because we were all at genetic stealing limits. So 
I remember the first day that bands even came into the play. Um, a guy named Dick Hartzell should be the one that come, goes down as being invented, inventing bands. Uh, he used to be the ex-strength coach at Ohio State, but he ran a place called Jump Stretch up in northern Ohio, and he brought a big box of bands down to the gym. This would have been about 99, 2000, and threw them in the gym and said, here, you guys fuck around with these and see what you can do. And so uh, George Halbert was really, really – probably one of the smartest guys at Westside Barbell ever. I would put him even at the highest level of Louie. Um, he grabs them and starts measuring them with deer scales. So he's figuring out band tensions and trying to figure out percentages and how this changes this and changes that. Cause you got to keep in mind that they were already using chains for quite a while because the chains were pretty easy to figure out. And they were also uh, easy to set up and they were indestructible. Some of the chains that we were using, were 30, 40, 50 years old from places that Louie was working construction. So uh, chains had been around for quite a while there, but the bands were new. And by the time I was the end of college, about 03, uh, and definitely into grad school, everybody was experimenting with them. Uh, they were becoming a huge portion of training in all the different places. And a lot of the experiences that I gained at Westside Barbell gained me a internship at University of Texas under Jeff Madden. Uh, because he wanted to know the fine-tuned art of chains and bands because although I would consider him one of the top strength coaches of all time, he still was unfamiliar with that because once he got up to those high-level football schools, he couldn't come up to Westside for a whole month and learn how to use them. So he was trying to learn things through his interns. So he picked me up and brought me down to the University of Texas, which was one of my first experiences at a massive, at that time, Texas had one of the best football programs in the, in the country. And uh, so that was a big, that was a big shocker for me, but um, that's when we started playing around with bands. And then uh, we started to figure out how much tension we needed for this and that. And uh, that, then that's, it just exploded. And then not only were we experimenting, but we were also all getting insanely strong off of using this accommodative resistance. Um, and a lot of it was because I think it messed with the timing so bad on the weights on the eccentric that we were able if you ever watch old videos of Westside Barbell, concentrically speaking, we were some of the fastest squatters ever. We would move world record weights fast. And I think a lot of that was because we were used to handling extreme uh, band tensions. So regular weights only falling at gravity felt insanely light because the bands wanted to rip your body in half. Yeah, I uh, know I've heard stories about, you know, if they're too heavy, you just kind of crush. And I've used them a few times. And anybody out there listening, if you go to use bands, be very careful when you put them on the bar. Uh, I just want you to explain for just everybody out there listening that doesn't understand what accommodating resistance is and, and kind of how the bands uh, work in conjunction with the weights and why it makes you so strong and why it makes you faster uh, out of the hole and, and in different lifts. Well, accommodative resistance is basically a type of weight resistance that changes based on the movement. So accommodative resistance in its pure form of understanding, you're supposed supposedly stronger in the middle and top of the squat. So if you look at a beginner squatter, you know, when they get super heavy, they're going to stop above parallel because that's where they feel strongest. That's when the bands actually provide the most work, but bands are odd because we look at things in weight, but what you ought to look at things is in velocity Bands want to pull things down faster than gravity. And in doing so, with the perfect storm of the amount of band tension to weight ratio, the body's central nervous system has to adjust to a load that is really unlike anything on Earth. 
So the muscles have to accommodate to a new stimulus and it makes free weights feel like toys if the weight and band tension ratio is perfect. Now that can be determined on your strength level. So a 600 pound squatter is not going to use the same amount as a 1200 pound squatter, but they would use the same percentages. Um, So band tension and weight ratio are very important because bands by themselves are not very good. They have to be in conjunction with so much weight percentage on the bar because the bands change so radically from the top to the bottom that you have to have something that stays constant, which is the bar, the weight on the bar. Um, So without getting into it too extreme, basically the reason that it works is because the loading that happens with bands and weight combined is a completely new stimulus, therefore following law of accommodation and the muscles scurry to try to figure out how to adapt to this new environment. So um, if that, that's the long and short of it, there's a lot of other scientific reasoning, but I truly believe that bands and chains really work because it's just a different environment that the muscles have to adjust to. Um, And we saw such immense progression from bands and chains at Westside Barbell because we were already strong. Um, So, you know, it's kind of like if you take a really smart person like Albert Einstein and you give him five other books in a completely different area of science, he's going to be insanely smarter based on the fact that he's just got different knowledge. So the muscles, in my opinion, kind of work in the central nervous system, kind of work in the same regard. The more things that they have to adapt to that still has some specific specific transfer tends to end up making the muscles very, very strong. So I think that they have more effect on the central nervous system, Golgi tendons and muscle spindles, and they just teach you to handle extreme loads um, and, and not break down in technique or form uh, based on the fact that they're trying to rip your, rip your body in half on the way down because they're accelerating gravity. So you could imagine 600 pounds of weight on the bars falling at, falling at 9.81 meters per second, and then you have a band tension on it that's throwing it down even faster. So it's not just how much the bands weigh, it's how fast they accelerate. Yeah, and it's, it's you know, accelerating that weight faster than anything it's, you know, your body's ever seen before because it's going faster than gravity. Um, yeah. And then also, too, you know, if you aren't incredibly strong and you try to use the bands, your weaknesses are going to come out even more and you're probably going to end up face down on the ground because of the fact or if you're not technologically sound. I think that's another thing that is not, you know, you go to a gym now, a regular one, you got every person has bands hooked up to all this stuff. And in reality, it's not like you said, it's not a tool for resistance. I think it has a lot of, you know, put, you know, you can use it there, but in reality, you want to use it to overcome heavy, heavy weights that you're already used to and add on to them. I don't really think there's too much warrant. You know, you see people wrap them around cable machines and do eight to 12 reps and things like that. I think that's just another stimulus and they feel it well, but I also believe that they really don't work a hundred percent unless they're used in that way with the accommodating resistance. Yeah. I think the big, the big power is with bands, especially is speed work. You know, um, when you use traditional weight training with speed work, you miss a large portion of the lift based on the fact of inertia. So when you hook bands onto a bar, you have to think of it like driving your car down the freeway at 65 and you have the cruise set and you're applying the brake and the, how hard the engine has to work, the harder you apply the brake. That's bands in a nutshell on speed work. Yeah. 
Absolutely. I think it's just, you know, and it's like I said, I think it, it's something else that isn't used, you know, and most people that use the linear stuff like we talked about, stay away from the band stuff, right? The bands are crazy or whatever. I think they kind of go hand in hand. I don't understand that. But if you use overspeed eccentric and the Russian stuff, it seems like you're into the bands, into the chains. And then if you're into the linear stuff that we talked about before, you don't see any of those things with the bands or chains. Uh, just because, again, like we talked about, I think it's laziness. You know, you can't add yeah. bands and chains to things if you don't know what's going to happen in the outcome or you can't handle a regular bar. Yeah. Or you don't understand any physics, but yeah. That too. Absolutely. And, and physics is, is the most important thing. You know, I think, you know, when I discovered it, same thing, I, I started listening to Louis about 10 years ago, probably. And that's when I discovered, it. I was like, Oh my God, you know, this is a whole other uh, different thing because, you know, like yourself, very interested always, you know, it was, oh, it can't just be eight to 12 reps on squat, deadlift and bench press. There has to be another way. There has to be somewhere else to develop force. And I remember when I listened to the podcast first 30, I kind of flew through because it was so interesting and the stuff with gravity just made so much sense. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I just want to go through uh, a little bit about your, you know, training philosophies now, you know, when you're writing programs and, and training different athletes and things, what are some of the stuff that you use? Do you incorporate bands into your, some of your training and a lot of the stuff you use for powerlifting, or do you have a, a different, uh, you know, training philosophy now with, you know, the biomechanics and stuff like that? Uh, I mean, my, my philosophy stayed pretty much the same the last 15 years. It's just how I apply it. Um, you know, everything's based on weak points. Um, Everything is either a heavier day or a fast day or a repetition day. Those are the three major methods of training. Um, everything is focused on postural deficiencies as well. And I think that's another key component to training people very, very smart is that you need to understand that everybody has a postural deficiency, maybe a lack of uh, motor recruitment in certain muscle groups that needs to be addressed constantly. Um, if you look at some of the smartest training protocols from the Eastern Bloc, they always talk about postural deficiencies being uh, corrected or uh, at least observed before you start vertical loading. Um, so that includes jumps. So what I find is that, you know, um, and then everything injury based and all that. But what I find is that it, it's based how you program is based on the need of the athlete and the need of the season at that particular time. So if you're in a hypertrophy block where you need to put on more muscle tissue, then speed work's not going to be as effective if it's not modified. Um, same holds true with max effort method. The max effort method is also, in my opinion, one of the most powerful methods, but it's also the most burnt, it'll burn you out the quickest. So the rotation of those movements have to be very high, uh, but depending on sport and time of season is going to depend on which exercises you use it at what time. Um, the dynamic methods always in play because you don't want type two fibers to degradate, whether it be a, an aging client or a kid and everything tends to come back down to bar speed and power. The problem is, is that with a good coaching eye, you can see some of the same technical flaws with heavy as you can fast. So if I have an athlete come in and squat as fast as they can, they're going to make the same mistakes as when they go heavy. So I find that the dynamic effort method when wielded correctly can show the same weaknesses as max effort method. If the coach is good enough to pick it up. Um, so my point is, is that I think that the way I train now is everything is more of an assessment tool than just a strength tool. I'm looking at everything to show me what the next step is to get better. And at the end of the day, you know, I think the statement should be 
definitely written down to all the listeners. It's your training's efficient when you figure out how to get the best by doing the least amount of work, not the other way around. So what you should be looking for is the most efficient way to gain what you want is your goal versus trying to beat yourself to a pulp, not recover and send yourself down a different road, probably because you're putting your energy in the wrong places. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a great point. You know, you see a lot of these giant programs with, with too much stuff in them, right? Because for some reason it's, there's a lot about, we have to add more stuff or we just have to do, you know, there's a lot of exercise. Why do we do these? Oh, because you have to do them instead of saying, okay, so-and-so has five or six deficiencies. We're going to work on those five or six deficiencies instead. And, and then they're done. You know, it's, it's the program is all about what the athletes need and not about filler exercise. And I think that is another thing that happens with a lot of the blocks. You don't need all this stuff somewhere out there. So, you know, I think it might be a lot of the certifications with the A blocks, the B blocks and C blocks. And I'm not saying that those are bad things, but I think a lot of times people think that they need to fill those up. Oh, I only have an A, B and a C instead of saying, what do they need? Because if you only need a warm up an A and a B, You've done your job if it's going to fix the weaknesses and also make that person better at their sport. But I think somewhere along the line, we, you know, there's there's a lot of programs filled with with tons of stuff. And I think in the athletic realm also, you see that a lot where these kids, you know, younger kids have these binders full of workouts and they're supposed to work out for two and a half hours a day when in reality they could, you know, they don't come into effect with, you know, if they're going to do it all or how old they are. And I think they end up doing too much stuff. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, that's, that's not uncommon at all, but you know, at, at the end you hit your hit it right on the nail on the head. If I broken multiple world records and I'm bigger than most people are probably ever going to achieve, I only train 50 fucking minutes a day. And I see these workouts going it is impossible to do that workout and stay in that time frame. And what I've learned is that it's not about the intensity of the day. It's about the consistency of the decade. So I think people need to think about that. I mean, it's not about what you do today. It's what you do in 10 years. So if I have a guy that half asses workouts, but never misses for 10 years, he's going to be stronger than the guy that goes balls to the wall for two years. Cause now he's injured. Wow. You know, That's a, yeah, accumulation. No, like that take. the other thing that you have to kind of think of too, is that how much work that you can achieve in a given workout or month or year, depending on how you want to look at it is all based on work capacity. So if you don't have any GPP, general physical preparedness, and you're not in shape, you can kiss getting strong goodbye. And it's not because they're the same. It's because the conditioning allows you to train hard enough to get stronger. Because if you can't recover from your training, you will not get stronger no matter what workout you're doing. So how do you increase recovery? You increase fitness level. If you're more fit, you're going to recover from a higher volume. Yep, absolutely. And if you're at a higher level of fitness, it doesn't take you long, as you said, to achieve what you're trying to do. If you go watch, you know, I had the pleasure of going to see the U.S. track team practice. They don't practice for seven hours. They do a warm up, you know, that's like a symphony. And then they run some sprints, 25 minutes, 45 minutes with some weights and they're done. Right. And everybody's like, oh, they must work out for two hours. I'm like, they don't have to because everything they do, there's purpose and they can get up to a high level and then go back down in 40 minutes and get exactly what they needed increase. It's all about recovery. And that's what nobody wants to hear. And it's what everybody on Instagram selling intensity, everybody on YouTube selling intensity. And what it's actually about is, is finding the optimization of loading that you can recover from. 
that's really what it's all about. And that's the problem is nobody wants to talk about it because everybody's a little different. And that's where these cookie cutter workouts and shit you're getting online for free. They're not taking any of that into consideration. So you're basically probably better off doing nothing than you would be following shit that's not made for you. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, the the emergence of social media, that's one of the things. Yes, it's great that there's a lot of information out there, but I think you also have to understand what's good and what's bad and also understand your level of preparedness, right? You see it all the time. I talked to my friends about it. You know, we entered quarantine. He said, you know, one of the things that nobody's going to talk about is that people, I'm sure there's thousands and thousands and thousands of people that got hurt because they haven't done a thing. They went out and bought a Peloton and they rode it for a week and a half. And then they blew out their, you know, their adductors and they probably have knee pain and hip this and all kinds of stuff. And you have all these people, what do I do in quarantine? I'm like, go outside and walk. What do you mean? I have all this time. And I'm like, but you haven't done anything in 15 years. You have to start slow. And I think that is something, as we talked about with social media, they don't care about that. They want to sell you a product and they want you to blow through the product in three weeks so that you can buy another one. Instead of saying, you haven't worked out, go outside and work, right? And nothing against the Peloton, but also you can't get, your whole life isn't going to change for riding a bicycle. I just, I hate these, the Nordic track, you know, the one piece of equipment that does things. I do think that the digital weight is, is pretty interesting, but I just hate, you know, the Peloton and the Nordic track. Oh, buy this bicycle. And now they have running and weights. It doesn't matter. You're not going to help yourself, right? Just like you said before, you're destroying yourself if you do that forever. Yep. All I've ever seen that shit is it turns into dust in one year and somebody's time. <laughs> and, you know, the hard part with it is, is that, you know, they have made the fitness community just like they've made the medical medical community, which is it was initially started to help people. Now it's just a moneymaker. Right. I mean, think about it in this perspective. You know, everybody can go get a free covid shot. But if you're insulin dependent now, you're going to spend two thousand dollars a month on insulin. But yeah. they have no problem selling you a milkshake and a cheeseburger, right? Or give you a Krispy Kreme donut to get your fucking <laughs> COVID shot or whatever. But yeah, that's my point is I think it's really difficult because I think the average person's been sold that they can take 10 years to walk into the forest and now they can get out in a week. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it it directly affects the the industry because, you know, if you're a strength coach, a trainer, and you've done your due diligence and you've went through the workouts and you've got your education because, you know, I deal with it, my business online, but even getting new people, it's always, they always, if people try to haggle price, they want to change things. You almost have no leg to stand on because it's, well, if you're not going to do it for this price, I'll just go get somebody else because we've lost that. Some people have lost that effect because there's no difference. You go into a gym, right? You go into a crunch and Equinox, there's 50 trainers, but they don't, nobody allows you to kind of separate yourself and everybody's the same. And I always thought too, when I worked at those gyms, when I was younger, you know, they're like, well, why don't you sell them supplements? Why don't you sell them this? I said, you're taking somebody who's already terrified of this gym. They walk up the stairs, they come in here and you car salesmen the shit out of them when they get in here to buy everything under the sun. Then you promise them that this trainer that they're afraid of because they're expecting this ego driven person. And now on top of that, you want me to jam supplements down their throat. And that I think that's what happens. It becomes a it's a tra- it's revolving door and it's ruining the industry because people no longer anymore either want to go in there and become in shape. Because just like you said with the, with the forest, people come in you as a trainer and if they show up 20 minutes late every day and they work out every other week, it becomes your fault at the end of the 10 sessions if they didn't get to their stuff. Or you see, well, I want to do this or I saw this video on Instagram. Why don't we do that? Because I feel like because it's 
so easy anymore to get a trainer, get access. People think that they have, uh, you know, their own opinion on what they need to be doing as opposed to yeah. li listening to us like professionals. Yeah. Well, and the, we got to flip the coin around too. So society's the problem too, because to the average trainer, and if you're smart and I don't mean to be a dick about it, but this is true. You, the first four to six weeks you have a client is probably though as long as you're going to hold most people. So if you don't sell them enough shit in the first six to eight weeks, you're not going to be able to stay in that job, especially in the position like what you're talking about, a crunch fitness or a lifetime. Those guys, they get such a cut uh, away from their what they're charging from the actual place that they work. And then they realize that half the people they sign up are going to quit within four to five weeks. So it's a lot of it's, you know, the, the society doesn't have any patience. They don't have any willpower. And so the trainers that are trying to survive are going to, you, they're going to try to use car salesmen the shit out of you because they're trying to make a living. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, I don't think that's something that's going to change. I think that's how no. you know every gym is going to be. And and like I said, I, I, I don't know how things are going to change because it seems like every day you go on social media, everything gets worse. There's more, you know, and, and I also love how the, the people that do it too, if you're athletic, you look good in athletic clothes, you can do programs. Everybody buys things. People don't like to look at, you know, case studies and they don't like to read, uh, you know, different things to do. It's all about, look at this guy who's, you know, probably on something or has yeah. great genetics, you know, great muscle bellies, all that stuff. And they do some box jumps and that's what you get. So it's a constant battle. And I'm always interested to see, you know, kind of afraid where it's going to go with the, with the social media stuff. Yeah. It's going to probably going to get worse. It's going to get way worse. And I think CrossFit's another big problem with that whole situation. Not that I I'm anti CrossFit, don't get it twisted, but CrossFit kind of did that too on another end of the spectrum. They, they showed everybody that they could do complex movements in a, in a weekend course, you know, whereas people don't realize that top level Olympic lifters spend 15 years to learn how to power clean before that. But now you throw somebody into a box gym at a CrossFit gym and now they're learning power cleans. And then in two weeks, they're left to their own devices with a workout on the board and they get their asses beat up. So it's and it's selling quickness, you know, but it's it's, it's yeah, it's tough. I think that, you know. That was one of the biggest life lessons I think I learned from weightlifting was the fact that everything that I was going to do that was going to be successful was going to take a long time to do it. And it was going to be patience and, and diligence. It wasn't going to be overnight. I mean, yeah, I was a decent bench presser when I first started, but what a lot of people don't realize is that I was in a full legged cast up to my ass cheeks for a whole year in a hospital bed. And I squatted three world records. Wow. I mean, I had six fractures on my right leg, a shattered pelvis, and four fractures on my left leg. The point is, is that um, I wasn't gifted in my legs. I had to work for everything I had to put my ass to. My legs were that big around when I came out of cast. And uh, so I feel like if I can move to that point, it's just about work ethic, you know. Um, but, yeah, it, it's difficult because, like I said, you know, it's, it's – um, we tend to idolize people on social media that are genetically gifted – um, that have probably genetics and potential that we may never have. It doesn't mean that we're there better or worse, but the problem is, is that they're selling something that some people just are never going to have, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that it's that, that self-affirmation and the same thing with CrossFit. I'm not anti-CrossFit either. I think it's great as a sport. You know, I like to watch it, but at the same time, 
you're taking something that takes years and years and years to do and you teach it in, in five minutes, you know, and all those Olympic stuff, you know, it's the same thing with, in my personal opinion, with strength and conditioning with teams, I never taught Olympic lifts. I didn't like Olympic lifts because for me, having 35 people in a room teaching a power clean, that, that would take all season to teach one, you know, to get one person good at power cleaning, why would I teach 35? That's where I use boxes and stuff. But that's also something else I, I don't understand. Taking large amounts of guys, 50, 60 in a weight room, I don't care how much it costs, and getting them to do Olympic lifts and doing snatches and cleans and all those things. I don't think that that's always ever been a smart idea, you know, but it's glorifying these things. You know, you get so-and-so does this movement. This guy does this power cleaner. You know, I do it with baseball. This guy it's a big reverse lunges twice their body weight, you know, and you're constantly battling those things. So it's going to be interesting to see, but I also think, you know, like we've been talking about, I think a lot of that stuff though will fizzle out or, you know, people will get hurt. I don't want anybody to get hurt and be out there listening, but that a lot of the times happens if you look at an influencer and you try to follow his workout for three weeks. So hopefully they'll kind of gravitate towards the more researched and better verse stuff. Well, yeah. What's hilarious is if I talked to Zatsiorski about this a lot, and for those of you, you that don't know who that is, he ran the Central Institute of Physical Culture in Moscow. So he was in charge of all sports for the Soviet Union from 1963 to 1984. So probably one of the smartest guys to ever live in strength conditioning. Um, and he laughed at American sports using Olympic lifting for football and basketball and all this <laughs> other shit. And uh, he said, if you want to jump higher and perform better at sports, get stronger and jump. I mean, and that was hilarious to me because, you know, if a lot of people don't know this and I'll give you a little bit of history, but the NSCA was originally developed in order to find Olympic lifting out of sports. So in the seventies, we wanted so bad to beat Alexiev. And in the eighties, we wanted so bad to beat the Eastern Bloc communist countries that strength conditioning was at the base root level initially formed in order to take guys that weren't good enough to play in the pros and hopefully it transitioned over to Olympic lifting so that we could win gold medals. And that's why Olympic lifting got pushed down the throat of all sports was because they were looking for Olympic lifters. And how well did that work out? Not well at all. <laughs> because to be a good Olympic lifter, you're not necessarily built to play football. You're not necessarily built to play basketball. So the point is, is that it comes down to biomechanics, anthropometrics, all these other factors. And we started to realize that, oh, Olympic lifting is a lifelong sport to be world class at it. Yeah, that means if you played football until you're 23 and then you decide that you want to be an Olympic lifter, you're not going to win a gold medal. You should have started that at four. And the Soviets figured that out. The Bulgarians figured that out. The Iranians and Chinese have figured it out now. And that's why the Americans will never have a gold medal. Wow. I didn't know that. That, that makes perfect sense though. Cause in all of those books, that's the first thing. I mean, every certification, every time they update it, it's always in there. So that makes quite sense. I mean, wow. Yeah. They, Cause they, they, it's constantly talked about. It's all they ever talk about. Everything is football. Yeah. So wow. they did that in order to pick out the guys that weren't quite good enough to play pro football. Maybe they didn't have the skills and they thought, well, these are going to be our top level athletes. So maybe we can get a couple power cleaners out of this, a couple snatchers out of this, and maybe we can win a couple gold medals. And that never happened. Yeah. And I honestly don't think it's going to happen either because we still, they still do the same thing. I mean, you know, they power clean to power clean better and they do snatches to snatch better. And it just never, 
You know, I, I don't know who works. Like I said, I, I never understood who works over there and does that stuff because it never we never get any better at stuff. And every time they redo the book, nothing ever changes. You know, I mean, I took some stuff for CUs and it's stuff I learned 15 years ago about speed mechanics and jumping and things like that. But I, I mean, if the same people continue to run it, it's always going to be that way. Personally, I think that we would change a lot in strength conditioning. It, I think the NFL should be responsible for donating a handful of millions of dollars in strength conditioning research. The reason that the, that the science is not progressing in how to train smarter and better and to get stronger is because there's no damn money in it, right? It's easier for us as a society to go find a Bo Jackson than it is to make one. Yeah, that's a big, that's a great point. Yeah, they need to, we need to get more money into it and it shouldn't be from the coaches and the, and the trainers. And I think that is where all their stuff has come from. You know, it's all the CEUs, all the conferences. I mean, one of the things not to, you know, go all over the NSCA, but one of the things I noticed is when COVID happened, it was still get your CEUs, make sure you get your CEUs. Oh, we slashed the prices of this for 600 bucks and now it's $200 and I'm over, you know, Oh, but, but why haven't you canceled it? Why didn't you bring it to the next year? And I think for me, you know, I always knew they were a little off, but for me, that was like, okay, they don't really care about anything but money because this pandemic's going on. And I get an email every day that my CUs are still due at the same time they were regardless. And now the $500 course that I don't need is now $250. Well, I think, yeah. And I'll go on the other side of the coin on that. I, I agree. But the other side of the coin of that is, is that the NSCA has built up a humongous revolving wheel of a lot of places. They had to keep the, the headquarters open in Colorado Springs. They had to keep all the board members paid. They had to keep all of that shit intact because it was so sketchy anyway that if they let all that extra money fall to the wayside, you know, I, I get COVID, I get hurt everybody. But the point of it is, is that the NSCA might've been right on the line of not being around anymore. I mean, they make a lot of money at those conferences and they, that's how they pay a lot of bills. And I think people don't realize how many people are on the administrative staff, how many people make the NSCA actually turn. And if they don't have consistent income, I'm pretty sure that that humongous building they have in Colorado Springs, they didn't just say, oh, you don't need to pay rent the next year. <laughs> yeah. You know, because I bet you that building's costing them 30, 40, 50,000 a month just to keep open. Yeah, so, absolutely. What you have to remember is like businesses like that, that are running off of CEUs, running off of national conferences. And when all that shit shuts down, what are they going to have to do? You know, and I think everybody had to scurry. I mean, a lot of my business went online during the COVID and now it's, it's exploded um, on the website. But the point is, is like everybody had to go to whatever guns they could to stay alive. And I think the NSCA had to do the same thing. Yeah, that is a good point. I didn't think about that. And also, you know, whether or not they are to their credit, you know, the biggest ones, if they go under, you know, we might be in big trouble as a field because I love NASM and the PES, but they still can't, you know, kind of step over that boundary. And I, I believe too, uh, also agree if they lose that Olympic center and if they lose the, you know, kind of the representatives for the training, we might not have a, you know, a profession if they go under. Yeah. So, so I, I do. Yeah. I appreciate that. And I, I didn't think of it that way, but yeah, you're right. Well, I, yeah. I, I do my best to try to keep them supported, even though I don't agree with a lot of their stuff. I try to speak at things and help them when I can, because I think they're still the best that we have right now. Yeah. Until, um, 
until somebody comes up with something better and you know hopefully they'll they'll come up with i think you know my opinion they should come up with a harder test i think it should be more along dr lsat issues just because it would help get us in a place and it would weed out people i think it's very oversaturated you know with you know and, and like i said people that don't want to do the research you know if you're doing your research i respect all those people that want to be you know want to move forward use all the new tech but there's also a lot of people that aren't moving or aren't doing new research and they just kind of sit and i mean i wouldn't blame them either if you're at one of these schools and you're grandfathered in you know why would you ever leave because you know i think it's the greatest job in the world once you you know if you're at a good place that that kind of helps you and, and you're able to kind of create and, and build as a as a um as a department Sure. I mean, yeah, I, I, th- I think that I what I would do is have the CSCS stay very similar the way it is. And then I would have a higher a higher tier. I would have a CSCS plus or a CSCS elite. And then that's going to be way more condensive in a test. I'm just not a huge fan of multiple choice. And I don't like how they um, utilize. They like to have people use their verbiage in the testing. And I'm not a huge fan of that. I think different coaches have different ways that they want to instruct or want to coach things. And I think that should be left alone. Um, So I'm not a huge fan of the practical side of that test. I think that the best test I ever saw was a CSCC, which I'm not even sure if that exists anymore, but that was for college strength coaches and how you pass to get a master CSCC. You had to stand in front of Boyd Epley, Jeff Madden, Dr. Kramer, and a lot of other people. And you had to explain your entire philosophy and how you, and how you utilize that philosophy. Now, whether I completely agree with it or not, that's irrelevant. What's relevant is, can you back what you're doing? And does it make sense to a person that's highly educated? If that's the case, then I think that you're on the right track. And then you're fighting over stupid shit at that point. Mm -hmm. But I think when you could stand in front of five or six professionals and say your piece and people like, well, I wouldn't do it exactly that way, but I understand why you're applying what you're applying in that particular fashion. I think that's how you should be tested, right? Yeah. Like to me, memorizing shit out of a book is not going to be good in the field at all. Yeah, no, I, I think that is, that's a great uh, look at it. And I, I think that's, I think you should have to defend it like a dissertation uh, because it would allow you to explain fully, right? You have 20 minutes, you know, you submit the programs early, you could have a PowerPoint, but I think that's the best thing because what we are, you should be looking for is somebody that presents their ideas, but also understands the science, can, can explain them to somebody else of high education, and then maybe even prove that they work on a sample size. And I think that's a phenomenal idea. The CSCCA did something a little bit like that. However, the flaw in theirs, I believe, was you had to create, you had to do movements in front of people and you didn't get to explain a lot. You only wrote a program and didn't get to defend it. But I think the other way is great. I think defending your program should be the biggest thing and completely agree with the verbiage. That is always the hardest part because some people don't, you know, don't talk that way. And it's also, I don't think that verbiage should be a big deal because you create your verbiage from how people respond, or at least that's how you should. If you use a certain cue and a number overwhelming of your athletes respond to it, that's what you're going to use. And I don't think you should make somebody go once a year or twice a year, take a test. And then what you things that you don't even know are, you know, um, you know, you won't even understand the questions. I think that happened with me a lot too, when I first took it and whatever, you know, the questions are very misleading because the verbiage has changed. It's, and it looks like yeah. you don't know what you're talking about, but in reality, just the questions don't make any sense off of, off of what you're doing. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's exactly the case. Yeah, I remember one of the questions was, I think something like, if you run up a hill, these things will go up and the choices were like heart rate, pulse, rate of respiration and like uh, something else. And I'm like, well, this doesn't make all these go up. This isn't like a good, you know, these are, but that's how the questions are. I always thought they were very ambiguous and just very uh, misleading, if you will. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I just want to get your opinion on, you know, we talked about the injuries and things like that. How do you think they, they should change that in professional sports in terms of, you know, we talked about time and training and, and, and the amount of time you have with certain guys. What do you think they should do to change, you know, in professional sports to kind of limit some of these injuries that I think we're seeing across the board in the NBA, the NFL is a disaster, MLB, it seems like somebody's hurt every 30 seconds. What do you think, you know, that would be a good way or, or kind of a, a way we could segue some of the things we talked about today and, and really help the teams, you know, limit those injuries or at least make guys better and, and aware of their own bodies? In a nutshell, they need to have a more mandatory offseason. I mean, I know all the guys I played in pro football, most of them did jack shit in the offseason. And then they come right back into preseason and they're getting their asses handed to them. But they have such good genetics that in four to six weeks, their bodies respond. And now they're back to elite shape. We, we know that bones, ligaments, and tendons adjust slower and need consistent loading in order to do so. I'll give you a case in point. Warren Sapp, nose guard. His last few years, he played at Oakland Raiders. Two of the defensive ends that I trained on the same team was talking to Warren Sapp. We're like, hey, man, we'd like to play as long as you and be a, you know, be, um, you know, be a Pro Bowl player, blah, blah, blah. And Warren Sapp goes, man, let me tell you something. When the season's over, I go home and sit on my ass for 12 weeks and don't do anything. I come back to practice and I look terrible for two, three weeks. And then all of a sudden my body responds and I'm a Pro Bowl player. And the guys are looking at each other and they don't understand it. That is 70% of the NFL. What you see is guys like J.J. Watt and James Harrison and those dudes working out. Do you honestly think as much of his attention hogs as those guys are that the other guys wouldn't be posting all the time working out if they were? Yeah. They're not. They are literally that good genetically, and that's why they're hurt because now they're playing against another guy that's that good genetically, and nobody's put in the time or effort or energy to build up the ligaments, tendons, and bones. Yeah, absolutely. Same, that's a huge. Same thing in the NFL, all of that shit. I would say the best work ethic offseason is probably hockey from what I know. Yeah, they're, those, they're monsters. I would say that, too, with the VO2 stuff. I mean, I think more of the the sports that, you know, same thing with basketball is a little harder. I think the the more, not to say in the NFL there's not conditioning, but the sports where there is more uh, a conditioning aspect, you can't gain those things, but completely agree with the, you know, guys come back. A lot of guys just hang out. I mean, it happened in baseball as well. Guys will just kind of, you know, go home and, and not do as much yeah. as they should and then come back and. Yeah. Well, look at the injury rates. Look at the injury rates when they have strikes. You notice how they all go up in almost every sport. Why? Because they're not doing anything when they're on strike. So it's the same thing in the offseason. If all the football players and basketball players were, were forced to maintain in the offseason, and I'm not talking specific maintenance, I'm talking general fitness strength, building a base back up, getting stronger, um, you know, those types of things would, would prevent that at least half. Uh, but that's, that's the biggest issue, I think, is that we've taken these pro-level athletes and we've used them for their genetic proudness but we really haven't given them anything back to speak of in strength conditioning or off-season training. And some of it's the strength conditioning and the team's fault. 
And the other parts of it is this is a new generation. It's they're fucking lazy. They don't, if you're not good enough doing half-assed work, they don't want to do it. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. Like I stay in contact with these newer generations through my interns and every five years, it's fucking unbelievable. I cannot believe the level of people. And I'm telling you that pro sport guys are not any different. They're just gifted. They don't have the work ethic. You know what I mean? So that's where I think that people get everything misconstrued because we tend to put up on a platform the athletes, again, like J.J. Watt and James Harrison, that are posting things and showing that they're working out and doing all this other stuff. And we think that all the rest of the teams are like that. It's not true, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I mean, that was always a question when I was in professional sports. Oh, I bet they work out all the time and they're the first to arrive. And I'm like, listen, some of them do, but for the most part, they all just want to play baseball and not practice and continue to play baseball. And, you know, I always use the example, oh, how good are people in the NBA? I said, you know how when you go out to the park and you play pickup basketball, they're good enough to play in the NBA that way. They don't have to try. So imagine what they would do. And then I think you have this, you know, the guys that stand out. I don't think whether that's a talent thing. I think that's who's doing the work in the offseason. I think yeah. that's exactly where we're at. It's not whether or not, oh, this guy was born differently than this. Yes, they all, but I'm pretty sure their genetics are very, very close to the point where I think it's just come down to the work ethic in the offseason. Yeah, I mean, you're three basic players from three different generations that prove that point. Larry Bird in the 80s had the most extensive work ethic you could possibly imagine. Then he had Michael Jordan in the 90s, and then he had Kobe Bryant in the 2000s. Those three players and those three different generations, they stood out because their work ethic was fucking insane. They didn't have off seasons, right? Larry Bird used to run at the top of the Boston Gardens, run the entire other team's practice just to, just to get in their heads. He would run a track the entire time the other team's practicing and then play the game just to freak people out. And then Michael Jordan never had an off season. He would literally come in right after the next day, after a, t- after a game, he would start lifting weights. All you have to do is watch that last dance on Netflix. Yep, I watched it about four times. Insane work ethic, right? But all the rest of the team members weren't like that. He forced them to be like that. And then you got Kobe, which was the same way, right? Yeah. Shaq would have never been the player he was if Kobe wasn't up his ass making him a better player because Shaq was lazy. Exactly. I think it's interesting, too. You bring up Kobe. He said Shaq would have been the greatest player in the world if he wasn't lazy. And I think that's what you're seeing. It's not that Michael's genetics were different, but the way he worked out and Kobe was the same way. They're insane. I mean, that's I thoroughly believe if they didn't play professional sports, they ended up in jail. People are like, what are you talking about? Yeah. I'm like they're out of their mind. They just thank God they were good at basketball and they made it to the finals and they won because and, and that's where my argument always between LeBron and those three. I'm like, LeBron's not even close. Because LeBron posts about it, but he's not nowhere close because he doesn't do those things. And you can blatantly see those things. And most importantly, LeBron can't make other people around him work harder. Everybody that played for Larry knew that Larry was going to bring 100% and you better bring 100% too. Michael Jordan was the same way and Kobe was the same way. They forced the teams to win championships. So that's where I'm a huge fan of work ethic. And that's, and they, and they, you know, Michael Jordan wasn't the best in the in you know when he first started. He had to work his ass off to be that good. So the point is, is like you know, work ethic is huge, and I think that people have a misconstrued view of what work ethic is in pro sports. They're just like me and you. Well, maybe not like me. I I'm a fucking animal too. But <laughs> like a normal person that wants to work out, 
or maybe fuck around with working out and be a weekend warrior. That's them too. They're just so good that they can get by with it. So I think it's hard because again, going back to the social media, we put all these people on pedestals that have these genetic freak, you know, freak genetics and they have these, you know, uh, maybe freak muscle belly insertions and they look crazy because they got a 26 inch waist and a 60 inch shoulder. But the point is, is, uh, you know, you should be focused more on progressing yourself, you know, as far as you can and focusing on building a strong work ethic. I think that will allow you to get as far as you can go genetically. And that's all you should be concerned with, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that, you know, I, I love that the last chance you came out because now I always like asking younger athletes, what did you get out of that? Right. And their answers are, are, will, will tell you what kind of athlete or where their mindset is at the time. Oh, my God, he was crazy. He was so good. I'm like, that's not that's not what blares out of this. It's the work ethic. You know, it's to say it's the it's the under. Was he really like I'm like, yes, he's insane. That's why everybody liked him. But I think those things, it's important that they come out because then you can go on the other side with Bo Jackson. Bo Jackson was just good at two sports and so good. And he'll say, I didn't work out all day. I just I thought practice was he stupid. He didn't even practice. Nope. Not at all. I mean, and that's crazy. I mean, just imagine he and here, but he's a good example because if he would have been lifting weights and working out, he probably wouldn't have ripped his hip to pieces. Yeah, he was strong, but so undertrained that I think that really hurt his soft tissue and his bones because he was so powerful. He had all the muscle, like he worked out all the time, but I don't think his bone structure was as strong as his muscles were and it tore him to pieces. If he would have just been, even moderately physically strength training. I think that he would have lasted at least another two to four years. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, his injury is insane. I mean, doing that to yourself is almost, you know, is, is wild that it got pulled out. I mean, you, you know, you, it was compared with when Tua got hurt, but I'm like, that's not the same thing because if your knees are bending, you land on the ground, that's the easiest way to have the femur go through the back of the pelvis and sever that artery. But he didn't do that. His wasn't falling down. So somebody was pulling his leg and he ripped his, you know, he almost severed the artery by the, the force production he was pushing out of the front foot. Yeah. And I think it's hard because, you know, the hard part is, is that a guy at that weight running at that speed and then somebody else trips him up by grabbing his leg and still can pull through that. I mean, the amount of force that was going through that, I mean, Bo Jackson, as far as I know, still has the fastest recorded 40. It's like 417 or something. Yeah, yeah, I think it's four one four one eight, I think, but it's still up yeah. there. And you know, he didn't he wasn't at combines training, he's playing baseball. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is wild. Uh so I just want to get your opinion on the technology. What do you think about all the, the wearable stuff and the canapult, the measuring stuff? Where do you stand with that stuff? And 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 do you think that some of it is, is too much, or do you think that uh you know, if we keep creating more, it's gonna make things better overall for the field? I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's a mixed bag. I, I think accelerometers are good and gym aware is good uh, measuring bar speed, but I feel, I still think even at the advanced level, most coaches are so miseducated on proper technique. I mean, fuck, we're still fighting over if your knees should go over your toes. <laughs> right. And I fight with people on with that all the time. And it's one of those things where we're still fighting over the basics. So I don't think adding more shit is going to make it better. Um, you know, I think the what's going to make it better is the application of whatever we can use. But uh, I'm not a massive fan of technology. I mean, we we didn't need it to break. I mean, when I was at Westside Barbone, including myself, we had 115 world records combined. So we didn't have any fucking technology. We were just smart. You know what I mean? And 
and, and we were aggressive. I think the hard part with all of it is, is that I think all of that stuff has its place, but people tend to want to use gadgets before they even have the basics down. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it also gives you kind of a, a goal to go through, but if you get there, you stop. I, I think that's another thing of, you know, we, we talked about it early on, don't let your limitations with your athletes or don't let your own limitations. I think the numbers are good. I'm a big fan of the recovery things, right? If you're in the minor leagues on buses and stuff and, you know, you're able to tell your readiness, I think that's 100%. But I also don't think, you know, some of the stuff measuring everything that they do because then, oh, well, I got to, you know, whatever – this amount of force production on a power play, or I ran this time, or this is what the tens unit says. I don't have to work as hard anymore because I lift more than everybody else. I think those are also things where you need to make sure that people still have goals in their own and not really worry about what everybody else is, is doing, you know, because I don't want it to be bailing on athletes, but I always feel like at some point, you know, somebody will run a hundred meters faster than Usain Bolt, but they won't run as fast as they can because they'll slow down because they've already, you know, attained it instead of running as, as fast as they can. I always think there's certain times where you'll see guys taken off or we have this new thing now where you give some too much power and there's a lot of complaining and things of that sort, but that's been my thing. I think yeah, that the technology yeah. is great. Pushing all that technology shit when I'm talking to them look like they've never lifted in their lives. <laughs> you know, so I don't know if that's just coincidence or what, but I actually ha- ha- half-assed got into an argument with a guy at 2019 NSCA. And he was talking to me about this and showing me this fucking thing. And I basically got to the point after about five minutes of this bullshit, I was just like, have you ever even lifted a real weight in your life? Like, you know, he had no idea who he was talking to. You know what I mean? Probably thought I was just some ex-football player. It was just, you know, whatever. But I was just thinking like, man, you know, some of these people pushing these higher technological things, they're just, they're just snake oil salesmen, dude. They don't, they don't know, you know, they never had any real weight in their hands or on their backs or ran a, you know, a four, six forty or some shit, you know? And that's where I think, and I'm not saying that it's all that way. I'm just saying that it tends to follow that trend. Most of these people that want to talk about what this machine says and how this force plate reacted to this and that, maybe you should just worry about getting them strong because I don't care what the force plate is. If somebody only has, can only squat 225, I don't really care. You know? Absolutely. No. And I think that's another thing with the experience. I think that, you have to make sure you do it. And that's it. You see that. I mean, when I was the same thing with professional stuff, you have the guys with the iPads and you have people calling and you can't, it ruins the sport and you can't do that. You have to understand what you're doing. And I don't also think if you have to use, if you have to bring in a scientist to use gym aware, or you have to bring in a scientist to use the catapult system, then maybe it doesn't work for strength and conditioning because we don't want to have that dynamic. I also think that's always something it seems like, as the technology gets greater, it's like, oh, let's create another position so that you can, this guy can explain to you these things, but you're never going to be on that side because if you have somebody who has never seen a thousand pound squat or whatever, or this is their number, you know, you could just look at a heart rate, right? I remember the first time I ever wore a heart rate. I ran sprints down the treadmill and the thing beeped the entire time I was at the gym and everybody thought I was dying because I was running at a higher rate than my Polaris heart rate thought I should be at. But I, you know, I think that those things are you have to make sure it doesn't get away because, you know, it's going to start to affect what the athletes do. Don't lift this heavy because I'm sure you've heard it. Oh, well, there's a study if you lift more than X amount of weight or if your spine moves one to two inches in either direction and the stuff comes out and I'm like, that's nice. 
but he's going to go on a field and run 25 miles an hour into another person that's bigger than he is and coming at the same speed. So I'm not worried about, you know, movement in the spine and the vertebrae. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, Matt, what's, so what's next for you? You know, you said that the business kind of picked up a little bit after COVID. Do you have anything in the, uh, in the works or, uh, you know, any new programs and things coming out? We always have some stuff in the works. I just came out with an off-season manual um, that's good for any power sports off-season-wise. It's got a lot of isolateral movements and developing left and right weaknesses, things that we talked about in the initial podcast. But I'm always developing something. Right now we're developing a kind of a alternate means methods uh, training manual, which is just going over like hanging kettlebells and giving you some, you know, some basic guidelines on that and training with some bands and doing things that are kind of awkward for a lot of average people. We're writing a manual on that. Um, we're just always just developing products and just trying to be ahead of the rest of the, the rest of the, um, you know, the strength conditioning. Um, we're working on right now doing some, uh, some contracts with the FBI to train field officers. So that's coming up soon. Um, but, you know, we're so busy here in town with the fire service and all that stuff that it keeps us on our toes. Wow. That's awesome. I'm excited to do that and, and excited to uh, read the manual. Uh, I think it's yeah. very important to to get those things out. You know, those introductions to bands and change that I talked about, because a lot of times people don't really know how to use them or they just, you know, loop them around things. And I think, like I said, it's very important to make sure that we get that on there and make sure you get that information out. Yeah, sure. Exactly. Uh, Matt, if anybody wants to get a hold of you, ask you more questions about the podcast or, you know, kind of ask about your training, where is the best way to reach you, ask you some questions and uh, get more information about your programs? Uh, the best place to go is winningstrength.com. Um, and then obviously if they want to see some, um, some, a lot of good free information, you can go on to uh, the YouTube channel winning strength. Uh, we're, we've got almost 300 videos out there um, that show you a ton of stuff. So we're always very excited to get new followers, new subscribers and get people to comment on the videos. Um, especially since it seems that YouTube is so short and actually how to train smart these days. Um, <laughs> I actually started the YouTube channel based on the fact that I had a couple of firemen go look up some exercises and just to see what they were coming up with. Cause I wanted to see what was that on the internet. This was like, five, six years ago. And they came back with some of the worst information I'd ever seen. And I'm like, man, I need to build a, a YouTube channel in order to try to help people in case, you know, they can't afford online coaching or they're hesitant about manuals. So we put out a lot of great information on the YouTube channel for absolutely free. Um, we fund that channel and answer questions through Patreon. So I have a Patreon account where I'm directly tied into all the subscribers on Patreon. We post special, um, like special events, like, you know, like exercise descriptions, the higher tiers get a lot of manuals and a lot of special stuff for free. Um, so it, yeah, I mean, that's kind of where we're at and what we've been doing and it seems to be working really well. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, I will definitely put uh, your Instagram, right? The, the website is, is in your bio on the Instagram. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then I will also, I'll put the YouTube in there too. When I put out the post for um, you know, for this episode. Awesome, man. Sounds good. All right, Matt, thank you so much for coming on. It was awesome getting to, you know, catching up and, and hearing your background and just talking shop. All right, man. No problem.